Hey there, it's Suzanne, producer of Midwesternish. You know, this podcast is only possible because listeners like you support it. So if you want to be a part of helping us out, just go to kcur.org slash Midwesternish, kcur.org slash Midwesternish, and click on that donate button that's right on the right hand side of the page there. All right, thanks. Lonnie and Ronnie McFadden are best friends and brothers, and they are also tap dancers. We'd be singing, and then all of a sudden, shh, don't stop. The drum just, shh, don't stop. And Ronnie and I go up, and people were like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> so, tap dancing is not like the popular dance form of our time, it hasn't been that for a while. Think 1935. But in a Midwestern city, and I suspect you know this, if you do something really well, it almost doesn't matter what it is. If you have your thing and you just keep doing it, you become known as the person who does that thing. Then after a few decades or so, you and your thing are woven into the tightly knit fabric of local identity. And then... Oh my God! You're Midwest famous. In Kansas City, the McFadden brothers are the guys who tap dance. From a dot in the middle of the map, this is Midwesternish. I'm Gina Kaufman. On this episode, how two brothers became best friends and tap dancers forever, and how they became Midwest famous doing it. The McFaddens grew up on a corner that today feels kind of forgotten, even though it's in the shadow of a shiny, revitalized downtown. You see empty lots peppered between houses. In fact, the house these guys grew up in has been torn down. There's just a feeling of tumbleweeds in the city, and when people do talk about this part of town, they're usually talking about poverty or crime. So the neighborhood itself, to give you an idea, one of the biggest gangs in Kansas City was, was uh, they used to have their station right down the street from us. But Lonnie and Ronnie didn't feel any of that growing up. This is Lonnie. We grew up in a, a household that was probably about as close to Norman Rockwell as I've, I've seen to this day. Lonnie's the older McFadden brother. My mom made sure every morning that we were well fed. I mean, with a hot breakfast. I don't mean cereal. Poached eggs, sausage, the works. Then she'd send them off to school with sandwiches cut diagonally. <laughs> and then we'd come home to a hot dinner. Now her work day would start because she used to work from 4 o'clock to like 11 o'clock at night every day. And that, it's hard for me to talk about that because I don't know how she did it. Yeah, that's I have no idea. very humbling. Okay, so you go ahead, Ron. I'm starting to... <laughs> With When we came home from school, my dad was there. And then he would take my mother to work and then he would spend time with us. That meant two things. Baseball and tap dancing. Their dad, Jimmy McFadden, was a professional tap dancer himself, and he was really good. He joined a group called the Three Chocolate Drops, and he toured with jazz greats like Count Basie. He had us tap dancing before we even realized what we were doing. We were just hanging out with Daddy, you know, and, and he would come up with, say, hey, try this, and try and show us a step, and then we try and then, and then when we get it, he's like, oh, man, I knew you could do it. <laughs> he make it so fun. Yep. 
by the time the boys were little, their dad worked at the post office, but he kept just enough gigs for his sons to get some experience. I want to hear how gigging with your dad as a kid maybe did set some kind of foundation for your career as a professional musician. Well, I I, I think I I like the whole the whole idea of it. And I mean, my mom bought us these gold jackets, yeah. you know, and and we would have on black pants and gold jackets and and uh, black shirts, and we our shoes were real shiny, yeah. patent leather, you know, <laughs> and we would go to the gig and and we would I think we did like five minutes. We would do maybe seven minutes because we yeah. sang. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, if you can call it that. <laughs> oh, and and see after that, you know, we would do the gig. We got paid maybe $20 a piece or something. And then after that, Daddy took us down to the foundation. Yep. Back then, it was, it was still the local. Okay, I just need to explain what the foundation is real quick. It's this hidden little pink building in Kansas City's legendary old jazz district. During segregation, black musicians used to go there to perform for each other late at night after they were done performing for white people. Well, it's still kind of a thing for musicians to go there and jam after hours in kind of a loose atmosphere. How old were you? Oh, man. The first gig, I was six years old and Ronald was five. And you were playing at the foundation late at night. You win the Cool Dad Award. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he oh, yeah. Awesome. He really was. Because Daddy would have us to do, do a... Uh, uh, do a dance and stuff and they would actually pass the hat around yeah and and we got paid even more I was I was sold <laughs> yeah I agree yeah. I was sold I said wow this is great but then this tragic thing happens the boys get older and they find out what's cool and what's not we actually stopped tap dancing because it was not cool you know <laughs> And when you're in high school, being cool is very important. It's extremely it's the important. most important. <laughs> it's everything. <laughs> and so we stopped tap dancing completely and, and picked up the horns. Because the horn was cool. Horns were cool because yeah. that's when Cool and the Gang was yeah. out and uh, uh, especially James Brown and then sliding the family stone. I mean, it was that was that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Lonnie joined a band, this time as a musician, with Clyde Nem and Her. That's the band we're listening to right now. He traveled all over the country. I went on the road. I left Kansas City at 16 years old and went on the road with them. So I saw what it was like. And, and again, that was a different era where, where you know, uh, an all-black band was red, would, could only play in the inner cities, in whatever city, whether we went to Denver or went to Salt Lake City, Utah, or... What was Las it like Vegas. to see the country that way? It was awesome. I mean, you had seven people traveling in, traveling in Clyde's Lincoln Continental. <laughs> it, it was all, it really, it really, I could not do it. There's no way in the world I could do that. My wife gets on me. I would not take a drive for longer than two hours right now. We went from here to Las Vegas, seven people in, in, in a Lincoln Continental with a U-Haul in the back. They had all of our equipment. It was a good time for sure, but after a while, Lonnie left it all behind to get back to making music with his brother back home. We've always been probably best friends. Everything we've done, we've done as a duo, I guess. And so after the band broke up, 
then we were left looking at each other saying, what are we going to do? You know, and so we said, well, we'll start where we left off. And that's when the McFadden brothers started. This was like the early 80s. The McFadden brothers didn't start out as a tap dancing duo. They were just a band. But they were having some trouble making a living off of music in their hometown. When we were in Kansas City, we mainly were only able to play in the, the inner city. Wait, we're talking about the 80s right now? Yes, we're talking about the 80s. So, wait, this was just informally, right? That you were only allowed to play in, in the inner city? Well, it's, Kansas City's an interesting place. I mean, you, you'll never, never in my neighbor, in, in my growing up, never was I uh, overtly discriminated. In other words, I never walked into a store on the plaza and they called me the N-word. But when I'd walk into a store on the plaza, I would be followed and not discreetly. From the time I walk in the door, if I pick up a pair of socks, the guy next to me is picking up a pair of socks and he's steady looking at me. And that would go on all the time. A good example, I was uh, when I was in my first marriage, uh, you figure a young couple, we riding bicycles, young couple, black couple in our 20s. We riding bicycles through the plaza. There's a police officer that escorted us the whole time. <laughs> And I was getting so, and my ex-wife, you had to tell me, Lonnie, just let it go. Every block we went down, he drove behind us. We left the plaza, went up by Loose Park. He slowly drove up there because we're on bicycles, so we can only go like five miles an hour, six miles an hour going up that hill. It's not subtle to be followed in a car when you're on a bike. Yeah. (laughs) And he wasn't trying to be subtle. So we had a a lot of things that were gone that made sure that we knew you're not welcome here. They had a musician friend, a white guy, who could not understand why the McFadden brothers weren't getting gigs in all the same places his band was playing. He kept suggesting them to venue managers in the same part of town where a cop had been following Lonnie and his wife on their bikes. They finally gave us a, uh, a audition and they said that we charged too much. And I, I, I mean, we were probably making less than any band. So this is part of the deal with being Midwest famous. You might assume that being famous in your hometown is like a shortcut of some kind, but that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes that hometown audience is the hardest to win over. The McFadden brothers actually made a name for themselves in Japan before they were ever a big deal here. Even though it sounded glamorous that we were going to Japan for four months at a time and we would make good money in Japan, when we would come back here, I mean, what what were they paying at the door? Maybe $2. And, you know, and it's in the inner city. Nobody's got a whole lot of money to spend. In Japan, they were pretty much forced to take it up a notch. The uh, Japanese people didn't really like our band at first because... All of our music was rearranged because in the United States, you know, all the bands, they compete against each other. And since they didn't speak English, all they could relate to was the record. And if you sounded like the record, you were great to them. And that's what got them tap dancing again. We said, okay, well, we got to figure out how to make these people like us. And we started entertaining. We started doing steps on our our songs. Me and Lonnie started tap dancing again. Uh, And we went from bottom to top. Tap dancing made people like them. And that changed things back home, too. We'd be singing, and then I was like, shh, don't shh, the drum just, shh, don't shh. And Ronald and I go up, (laughs) and so, and people were like, oh my God. And suddenly, it was like 
they'd figured out how to make tap dancing cool. (laughs) So we got the reverse uh, reaction from when we were kids and it wasn't cool. But now Ronald and I are grown men and we're dealing with the rhythm. Or maybe it finally just didn't matter what was cool. That's part of being Midwest famous, too. We're not, yeah. we're not trying to, to, uh, to emulate Bojangles or anybody. We were just dealing with the rhythms. Remember, this was the 80s. Breakdancing was huge. We hooked up with some breakdancers at one time. And I think we showed them a little tap dancing, and they showed us a little bit of breakdancing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the name of the move you just did, but we got Doing a little move. I don't don't know what you call it, but (laughs) the wave. uh, Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) But they showed us how to do all that and moonwalk and and all kind of things like that. Lonnie and Ronnie won't tell me how old they are, but they're in their 60s. Or so a little research implies. They've just got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Tapology Music Institute. Lonnie's got regular gigs four nights a week. And Ronnie's been doing a little more behind the scenes as a manager, but they still perform together on special occasions. Here they are in 2008 at an outdoor festival not far from their childhood home. The good thing about a tap dancer's jam session is you can always tell who's good. And also who's not so good. But we're going to start together because that way we both look pretty good. Lonnie and Ronnie are having a blast. They're dressed up in matching suits. And as soon as they start to dance, the hip young crowd is just mesmerized. I've seen you perform, and the amount of energy that is just radiating from you on stage is incredible to me. And I I don't know exactly how old you are, but if you are my age or older, which I know that you are, I think it's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Well, I I, I know um, I I just love doing it. And so I just I just keep going, you know, and and until I can't do it no more. It just seems like it's something that if you love, you just keep doing it. I don't know. Is it different? It is different. It, It is different now for me than than. (laughs) <laughs> like 30 years ago, I mean, you might even be able to find some clips of us doing these high jumps, doing the splits in, in there and, and things like that. You, If you come to see me tonight, you're not going to see that. I guarantee you. But but we will. I do tap dance. And, and you do learn how to compensate. I mean, this guy told me a long time ago, if you continue to do it, you'll be able to do it. But if you stop. And that's why Ronald and I can't do the jump. We stopped for one year. We we took that that one song out of our act. We tried to put it back. One day we were practicing, and neither one of us could do it. What is the move? It's well, we doing these wings on both. It's like that's anybody that's a dancer know what wing. So we're going from one foot to another doing a wing. We after we do these wings, we do a point at each other, spin around, and then do this high jump, and where we do splits in there and then hit the ground spin around and point it and do a stop pose we used to do that jumping off stages just to yeah. challenge ourselves and, and <laughs> stuff like that and so we just stopped doing it for about a year we we just were doing other songs and things mm-hmm. and one day 
either around on me once. Let's do don't mean a thing. We used to do don't mean a thing if it ain't got this one. Ding, 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 ding. It don't mean a thing if it ding, 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 ding. And yeah. so we would be doing it's all the all the rhythms are fast enough. But then after doing all those rhythms, then we did this spin, high jump, hit the ground, spin, point. Neither one of us could make it to that part. <laughs> like, oh my God. How would we how did we ever do that? So now you will never stop doing anything again. No, not no. me. No, no I, I do everything that I do because I can. It's a celebration that I can. <laughs> And maybe that's why when you're watching them, it doesn't matter whether tap dancing is cool. It's cool because these guys make it cool, because they are who they are. And really, it's not just tap dancing they're bringing back. Their story is so rooted in this place and its history. After years of Midwesterners looking for something cool out there on TV or in a magazine, we're finally saying, wait, what's here? And it turns out that what we have where we are is so much cooler than any of that noise. Because it's real, and you won't find anything like it anywhere else. I guess that's what it means to be Midwest famous. There are real people with real stories doing amazing things right here, and we are finally paying attention. Because we can. It's a celebration that we can. This is a podcast from KCUR Studios. Suzanne Hogan is the producer, and Sylvia Maria Gross is our editor. We are obsessed with all those weird little Midwestern quirks that we kind of know about, but have not quite put our finger on. And if you've noticed something funny about life in the Midwest, we really want to hear about it, especially if it comes with a great story. So call us up and leave us a voicemail. We might include it in a live event we're planning in Kansas City this spring. Here's the number, 816-235-2797. I'll say it again. It's 816-235-2797. But just keep the message to one minute, okay? We're also on Twitter, so you can talk to us or tell us jokes or send pictures. We're at Midwesternish. I'm Gina Kaufman, and that is it. See you next episode.